Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks for listening to the Not A Diving podcast. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our private Discord server, sign up at patreon.com slash scuba official. This is Not A Diving podcast with Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Right, I'm happy to say that we're back with a brand new episode. The last couple of weeks have been reruns, as it were, because I was laid up with a really nasty back problem, which was not the best start to the year for me, to be honest. A complete nightmare. I think if you've ever had serious back problems, then you will empathize immediately with anyone else who is having them. It's genuinely one of those things that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. But I am happy to say that I am back in the game and we are back on schedule. So just before we get started with this week's guest, I've just got an announcement to make regarding Hot Flush Bandcamp policy. So if you listened to my double header solo pod on Bandcamp last year, you'll know that the concept of allowing people to pay more or allowing people to pay what they want, I think, essentially, for stuff on Bandcamp is a really key aspect of the platform, which is not used that extensively in dance music Bandcamp. So doing the research for those episodes really piqued my interest in the whole thing. And as a result of that, we have decided to change tack with what we do on the platform with Hot Flush, which is my label, of course. And that change going forward as of today is to make all of our catalogue items pay what you want. So if you go on to hotflush.bandcamp.com now, you will notice that all merch items, which is to say t-shirts, mugs, but also vinyl records and CDs and cassettes are pay what you want. Now there is a guide price, which isn't really a recommended price. What we've got up there is a approximation of what the cost price is. So you can see what it costs the label to produce and past that, 
it's really up to you what you want to pay for it. Now, we're just doing catalogue items because we don't want to be undercutting record shops on new releases. Record shops, as we've said many times on the show, are a crucial part of the scene, crucial part of the ecosystem, and we don't want to be screwing those guys over. So it's catalogue items only. When we do a new release, it will be priced, you know, equivalent to what you would pay on Juno or Hardwax or whatever, and we're going to be sticking to that. Digital downloads will still have a minimum price, but bear in mind when you buy the physical copy of a release, you always get the downloads for free as a result of that purchase. I mentioned this merch as well as releases. We do have a Hot Flush label tee, the classic logo on a tee, up for pre-order today, and that is pay what you want. So yeah, we are really doing this. Head over to hotflush.banghamp.com and check it out. Right, on with the show. I mentioned it's the first new episode for a few weeks, and we are welcoming none other than Fracture to the show. Fracture is a bit of an underground legend of the London drum bass scene, although as we hear during the conversation, he feels a little bit estranged from drum bass these days, but he has uh, yeah, been running a really interesting label for the last 15 years or so called Astrophonica. And yeah, we talk about that stuff, but also I think more interestingly, or just as interestingly, I should probably say, we talk in general terms about the development of scenes and the state, the underground, in quotation marks, music scene is in today, globally. So yeah, great to have him on. Astrophonica, like I said, is a drum and bass label ostensibly, but they've moved around the edges, I think it's fair to say, of that genre. So um, I guess it's sort of analogous. It's sort of in the same direction, philosophically anyway, as Deebridge's Exit Records and the autonomic sound and all that kind of stuff. But it's um, it's not the same thing exactly, but I guess it's coming from the same headspace as that stuff. So I mean, they've, in addition to drama stuff, they've also released some really interesting 160 BPM 4.4 stuff, which I referenced in the conversation. And um, yeah, it's a label which is well worth checking out and Fractured Productions are also, generally speaking, worth checking out for sure. So yeah, great to have him on the show. Just before we get started, a reminder, you can get rid of the ads by heading to patreon.com slash scuba official. Follow the show wherever you listen to this podcast. If you don't want to do that, it's also cool. That really does help the show too. There's a Spotify playlist you can also follow. Check the show notes for that playlist. And join us on the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. There is a private area for patrons, but you can just get into the server regardless via that link. Okay, Without further delay, here is Fracture. Fracture, welcome to the show. How's it going? I'm good, mate. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, big big fan of the show. Actually, before we get started, I must say that. Good, good. So glad, glad to hear it. Well, hopefully we're going to deliver a good episode to live up to that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah so yeah. yeah, this is actually the second time uh, attempting this. So... We were saying off mic that um, well, we were trying to figure out last time I saw last time we saw each other. It can't have been fifteen years ago, which was your <laughs> your estimate. I was right, it can't be that. I think it was. Yeah, no, I I think it was. I think you just moved to Berlin. Wow. And I think I came on essentially a raving holiday. Shit, actually, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember sitting with you in a in a pizza place on Warschauerstrasse in two thousand seven. Right. Fucking hell. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah, obviously quite a lot has happened since then. Yes. So, yeah, tell me what's going on, man. Tell me what's going on with you guys at the moment, with the label and all that. Yeah, man. So, 
we're pretty busy label side of things um i mean we've literally just announced a new record by sully and a vocalist called sallow so i get my plugs in there early um but that's that's like a a real good example i think of what i've been trying to do on the label which is um present music that is familiar to people but always has uh ask some questions and kind of flips the expectations a little bit i suppose i mean i i, I say now i suppose it's primarily we release kind of jungle and drum and bass but have been known to to do all sorts of things but i'm always quite interested in the the little bits in between genres mm. and the slightly different takes on existing genres yeah because i mean the label um well it started in 2009 was it is that is that yeah. right and saying that yeah and it's always yeah like as you said it's kind of sat at the um at the edge of that drum and bass thing right um i guess in a similar kind of spot to i mean may i mean exit records sort of springs to mind and that that i guess they're kind of what people would might describe as kind of left field ends of drum and bass is that kind of how you see it it is yeah definitely i mean exit has definitely been a um a, a definitely a kind of place of inspiration and i mean darren and debridge and uh, you know everything debridge does is is uh i always take on boards and i always kind of use him as a source of inspiration so i will always give a shout out to exit but in terms of in terms of what i do and what we do you know what it is right it's one of those ones i've never thought of it as in i'm going to release left field music mm. it's just the music i've i always gravitate towards and i think that's how i've always a and the label is that i'm not looking for something in particular i'm just looking for music that immediately excites me as a listener actually more than anything else you know if it so it's just my taste it's just that's what my taste is i've never set out to have any kind of mission to <clears throat> release specifically kind of left field or flip mode kind of versions of existing genres but that's just where my taste gravitates towards yeah um so you know i'm sure we'll probably get into this sort of stuff later on but the, the moments in time that have always excited me have been like you know for instance the early dubstep kind of 2005 2006 where it was it wasn't quite solidified and it was the, the the boundaries were somewhat um undefined and then like the autonomic thing of you know i know you've spoken about that on the podcast before so the kind of 2009 2010 thing uh and then like the, there was the footwork jungle thing which was a few years after that that's where my taste leads me to those sort of moments in between genres where possibilities arise do you find that drum and bass is like generally speaking, is a scene which is um, like easy to fit those slightly different kind of curveballs into. I mean, my my perception of drum and bass, I think, um, has always been that it's it's very it, it's singular musically, right? It's it's you know it's it's the it's the tempo thing. It's the kind of the ownership that people seem to feel over the music. Do you find that? trying to run a label like that and i think maybe that's not the right word but like you know coming to drum bass with with different influences and different kind of i mean curveball is this the kind of word that i keep one you know i, I want to use here like i mean how do you feel about drum bass in that respect yeah 
Um, curveball, I think, is a great word. Um, I try not to get in trouble here now. But um, no, I agree with you. Um, is it easy? No, it's not. Quite often it isn't, um, particularly from a kind of crowd expectation point of view yeah i read you in um, i read you in an, an interview about half an hour ago talking about clearing dance floors with your um like the the four four stuff like the super 160 four four stuff right <laughs> yeah yeah definitely i mean i mean that that's quite an extreme extreme um example but you're right i mean drum and bass is bound very much by a tempo um so much more than a lot of the other electronic music genres so even something like techno or or house they you know you've got a a swing of at least 20 bpm i think whereas drum and bass you got that f- swing of about five bpm really as soon as you take it slower it becomes something else um and i mean if you want to go even faster then you know that again becomes something completely different so it is tricky but i've always found that as a bit of a challenge and something that excites me and something that artistically inspires me okay so how can i fit into the world of let's say drum and bass jungle drum and bass but present some new ideas how can i do that how can i have people that are into this music already also accept the 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 slightly kind of curveball stuff that i want to try and do so you know it becomes a challenge at that point but a challenge that I've given myself and that I then feel excited about trying to to complete and I suppose it's not about forcing music on anyone because I you know I'm, I, primarily I'm a DJ and I'd never force music on people that I didn't think was going to work but it's the same with my DJ sets as well actually I've I've always tried to present music to people with the idea of perhaps you you can also fit this in have you thought about this music in this context so so yeah it becomes a challenge and it certainly is difficult i think um but i also kind of think that that's one of the thing one of the reasons maybe why drum and bass is still around and is still is still if anything is stronger than it probably ever has been now is because it it has quite strict rules to it and people follow those rules quite passionately um so although you know sometimes that can lead to stagnation i i also think that it it's it gives it such a solid infrastructure i suppose is the right word mm. for people to sort of return back to and come back to yeah, I mean, I think having 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 rules and having constraints can, you know, actually, you know, paradoxically, almost be be really creatively useful. You know, sometimes it's too, sometimes you can be too free. You know, and sometimes like you know, pushing at the edges of something which seems really hard, seems really, um, you know, set in stone. Hmm. Sometimes those can be the best sort of conditions for being really creative. But I mean, over the course of the last. I mean, just talking about the, the lifespan of a label, have there been significant changes in the the way the like the say the the, the audience, the drum bass audience and their kind of expectations has that changed significantly? Do you think in the over the lifespan you've been running a label for? Um, I think it is definitely more open now. 
or at least it went through a period of being more open. And I would actually say that now I'm artistically and as a, and as a label, I think we're probably standing somewhere outside of um, the main, I don't know what you want to call it, um, clutches of drum and bass. I kind of think um, when we started the label, 2009, 2010, we were sort of on the edge, but um, there was quite a lot of overlap. Um, and I think what's happened now is it went through a period, I think, probably 2012, when the sort of footwork kind of thing was happening. And then um, had artists like Machine Drum and lots of kind of stateside artists coming in and kind of shaking up the whole thing. And of, of course, the, the autonomic thing. Um it went for a period of being quite open, I think, then. But I almost think it's kind of split back off a bit. And I, I just do what I do, you know, now. That's it. I kind of do what I do now. And I really don't like to try and sort of pigeonhole and give things too um, too much of a box. But I guess, um, I guess what we do fits more into a kind of uh, jungle sort of world mm. better than it does strict drum and bass now I think I mean I hear a lot, a lot of the drum and bass I hear now um, number one I don't know who anyone is that's making it anymore or playing it really and number two is just it, it's quite far from what I'm currently doing and that's not a comment on if I uh, on it creatively or musically it's, it's just quite far from what I'm doing currently okay so, so do you not really see yourself as being part of it almost anymore not really, no. Not really. Really? Wow, okay. Not really, no. I think... I think, and I mean, this comes with experience and longevity, I suppose. I'm, I'm quite confident in doing just what I, I want to do mm. um, and existing in, in, in my own place that I've sort of slowly carved out over, I mean, 20, 20 years. Sure. I mean... But to go, yeah, go. On. No, I was just going to say to to go back to what you were saying about rules and and genres having specific rules being a good thing. I think you're right because it does a couple of things, right? It, it allows you then to be able to break those rules, yeah. And that's when exciting stuff happens. Uh, so you know uh, those moments that I met, uh, I mentioned before. You know the the autonomic, the dubstep. Um, those kind of moments where it's like all of a sudden the the rules are being broken. But also I kind of feel that if you don't have rules or at least a set of standards by which a genre or a movement or whatever um, adheres to, it there's it, there's almost a loss of context. Mm. And like you say, you're 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 so free that basically you can do anything, which on paper sounds like a great idea. But if you can do anything, then there's almost no, almost like quality control, I suppose, because anything goes and anything's okay. Right. So it is paradoxical because on one hand that feels great. It's like, of course, why shouldn't we artistically be able to do anything and have zero rules? But I do feel that those rules provide context. And I think context is incredibly important um, in any sort of art. Um, you know, context culturally, uh, context um, historically, sonically, all, all of those sort of things. You know, I think context is incredibly important. And if you lose that, 
it can ultimately just be a load of different sounds kind of thrown together rhythmically. Yeah, I mean, particularly when you're talking about dance music, right? Because at the end of the day, like, you know, it, it's it's music which is, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to call it art, but it's, it's, it's functional art, you know? It's being made for a specific purpose and you've got to if it doesn't meet that purpose which is to say make people dance in a rave then it hasn't really succeeded has it mm. Mm. so yeah i mean having yeah. so having yeah exactly right i mean context is, is is the right way to put it because you know the context is you know enabling people to to to, to vibe off whatever is coming out of speakers on a dance floor right and and yeah and without without that and you're kind of lost. But let me ask you, um, because I, th- I think we first we first met, I think, as a result of technicality that night in the early 2000s. Yeah. I think that's where we first came across each other. Because well, you, were, you were friends with Matt Qualified and, and I also knew Matt yep. in the early 2000s. That's right. And technicality, it struck me, was... Um, I mean, I was trying to remember it. I only went to it a couple of times. But... You know, my perception of the the kind of dance scene, the kind of wider dance scene, and and the kind of the club scene, like particularly in London, is that a lot of us, a lot of those small venues have been squeezed out. Um, a lot of them don't exist anymore. And my perception is that that kind of small club, small night ecosystem has really been. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to say that it doesn't exist, but I don't think it's it's nothing like what it was in that era. Is that is that something? Do you do you agree with that statement? yeah it's a tough one man i mean that was an incredible period of time early 2000s um east london mainly shoreditch i mean there seemed like there was on any given night of the week there'd be like three or four really cool things going on in shoreditch be it at plastic people or herbal or um i mean there was loads there were loads it felt like there were loads of little kind of venues popping up and allowing people space to to do things yeah i do think it's changed um and i think i think i was getting excited again in like 2019 actually um and it seemed like through people like sherelle um and a six-figure gang as they were at the time and that sort of little movement it kind of felt like there were little things going on again um which unfortunately got kind of scuppered by by covid um so if it, and then post covid if i'm honest that the whole thing just feels completely different even i feel different mentally about what i'm where i am and where i sit in it and how i how i relate to it um you know the fact is i'm not i'm not at a period in my life where i'm going out to to sort of small weekday nights anymore you know i've got two kids um and so my life is different you know so yeah, the whole thing feels different. I think I think for me, the biggest change and the biggest loss is obviously the spaces um, themselves, but it's what those spaces allowed. Um, and that was like an incubation period of ideas and scenes. Um, like even like going back to forward at Plastic Yeah, I was absolutely part of the same thing, right? Totally. I mean, some weeks I remember going there, it'd be like 10 people there. <laughs> yeah, literally. Like literally right, yeah. 10 people. Yeah. And that went on for months at a time, you know? And that was just kind of the thing. Are you going forward this week? Yeah, maybe. Maybe there's 10 people. Maybe there's 20. Maybe there's 30. Maybe it's packed. Um, and I, I think 
technicality at Herbal was the same. You know, some months were, were quiet, other months were really busy. But what that allowed to uh, allowed the music to do, and most important, the crews of people to do, was kind of really incubate and build something. Um, and that is something that I feel is like a real shame that doesn't necessarily exist in the same way. Kind of feel like, particularly in London, it's very competitive. And if you don't kind of um, start off with a real banger of a night, um, you know, you're, you you risk just not being in, uh, invited back or not even having the finances to, to continue, you know. So, yeah, it is in a different place and it is it is a bit of a shame. But at the same time, I will say that I'm post-COVID, I feel that, you know, I, I do feel a little bit more of a disconnect anyway. So there might be stuff going on that I'm not necessarily uh, aware of. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm loathe to make absolute statements about this stuff, yeah, for, for exactly the same reasons that you've just given too. But um, I think that, um, I mean, what you say about there being like immediate financial pressure in in a way that there wasn't before. I mean, that really I mean, it makes, makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because I mean, I think the, there's financial pressure at all levels, um, you know, for, I mean, anyone involved in this industry, really, that, that, particularly that part of the industry. And I think the small venues must be under the most pressure of everyone, right? Just because of the, you know, just, well, just because of the, the obvious like the costs that have gone up so much and particularly post-COVID. And, you know, I think that has a real, it has a tangible benefit because, I mean, you know, I think if, I mean, talking about, I mean, using those examples of technicality and forwards, um, if they'd been under under pressure to to shift hard tickets, they wouldn't have survived. They just wouldn't have, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally not. Completely, they they totally wouldn't have. And it it gives a different, purpose for the night as well then like you say it's not a hard ticket situation yeah it's more of a it becomes almost like a testing ground sort of thing i mean and you know technicality and and forward and and loads of other nights were were like that they were became sort of testing grounds um again you know darren and exit records they had quite a few little bits and bobs along the way in east london as well and that was always that was always the idea there it was like um let's test some music Let's test some new ideas. Mm. Um, and those always feel the most exciting spaces for me. Um, I know we we'll keep going on about it, but forward, um, those early kind of forward years when it was it was kind of dubstep, not quite. There was also a lot of grime being played. I mean, that was just like, I found that so exciting as a listener because I had no idea what... Yeah, it was music you couldn't hear anywhere else. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, as you said, you, you had no idea what was going to be played and it was music that was only going to be played there, right? Yeah, or on pirate radio. Yeah. That, those were the two places. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, because it's, just some, it's different though, isn't it? It's fundamentally different playing stuff on the radio compared to playing stuff in front of an audience, right? And I think it's the same... Well, I, I think this is the problem now, because, I mean, yeah, there's, there's plenty of opportunity to people, people to play music, you know, because you know online and on you know there's no shortage of of streams and all the rest of it but in um in a club with a big sound system with people on the floor that's when you really find out about a tune isn't it really yeah yeah totally and sometimes that doesn't happen immediately either yeah and you know i'm i'm very keen to not sort of um dump on how 
the culture moves and yeah, sure. yep. exists currently um you know the sort of immediate impact of social media and the the seemingly throwaway nature of it but it's something one of your other guests has said actually crust i can't remember if he said it on on your podcast or if he said it elsewhere but he he talks about how what well, arguably his biggest tune warhead um i think he had it on dub for like 18 months mm. and for the first kind of six to nine months of those or whatever it was, no one was really reacting to it in a club. Yeah. And if anything, people were reacting badly it's to it. It's crazy that, isn't it? Just It just seems so ridiculous. But, you know, sometimes it's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah, whereas now it kind of very much feels like... And it can be really disheartening and derailing, and that's why I think it's dangerous. It can feel like, oh, you finish something, you play it out, doesn't get the immediate reaction. So then that's kind of that. That's the end of that life cycle of that piece of music whereas those spaces like technicality forward and whatnot you know they gave those um reoccurring nights they gave the space for me for people to get into the music slowly mm. and then suddenly think like right i kind of get what's going on here rather than okay it gets dropped didn't get the reaction scrap that one try something yeah, else yeah it's actually really interesting you say that because um you're, you're right to say that there was a lot of grime played at the early forward but i think actually that happened was because the reason that they they started getting the mcs down right the reason they started booking some of the grime guys was because the early dubstep stuff wasn't really connecting and it wasn't getting people dancing enough that's the impression i think i have looking at it looking at it now anyway right but then ultimately the stuff when it really did you know, pick up. Actually, that wasn't a great moment for grime. Like 2006, 2007, that wasn't a great, those weren't great years for grime. And it was just so suddenly the wind went into the sails of that dubstep stuff and it just, you know, but that wouldn't have happened. That wouldn't have survived without, as, you, as you're describing, you know, the space being there, you know, for, for the experimentation to happen and, you know, the different things to, different um, influences to come into it, you know? And that's, yeah. I guess, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I suppose I'm interested in, in 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 hearing what you how you approach this because I'm all of the music I've always been into, be it jungle, be it dubstep, um, be it the footwork jungle kind of stuff. It it was always really new and cutting edge and fresh, right? So I've always been like someone who looks forward, but now we're at a point where there are a lot of discussions about how it used to be so how it was in at forward how yeah, totally. it was pre pre social media right so how do you approach that as a concept like uh, cuz i i always want to be on the cutting edge of things and i'm always interested in what young people are doing and i'm always interested in how young people are making music why they're making music and so on and i really don't want to be the the kind of older guy who's like oh you know in back in we should have done it this way better this this way because i was uh, you know, I was always interested in what was happening on on the forefront of technology and culture and all that sort of stuff. So, I'm going to ask you a question: How do you a- approach that as a as a concept? I mean, I think it's really hard. I think, particularly in the last few years, um, not a lot new has really happened in electronic music at all. Really, I mean, it's difficult to reach another a different conclusion than that. Because I mean, when you talk about something like footwork, like footwork was just completely out of the left field do you know what i mean it's just like i mean i don't think anyone saw that coming you know something which would be so Mm. completely uh 
almost alien sounding, but then to have a really like an interesting set of influences on stuff which was which was happening and stuff which was popular, right? But that was like that's ten years ago, or, or the more more than ten years ago, um, that that really uh, sort of caught on and started to have a have an impact. And I don't know. I mean, it's it's difficult not to be. Um, it's difficult not to sort of be pessimistic about it, and it's difficult not to have these sorts of conversations. Um, with with the caveat that there is, of course, lots of great music being made at any given point. And, you know, I, I relatively recently started doing a radio show again, which has, you know, kind of focused my mind in searching out new music here each month. And there are loads of great tunes coming out. But I don't see there being, like, uh, movements in that kind of a sense, you know? Like, so in isolation, there's tons of great producers making great stuff, some of which is, is really quite interesting. But there there aren't those you know, little scenes which bubble up and then really catch momentum and suddenly you've got a whole kind of musical movement of the sort that you you had in multiple instances. I guess for, you know, you could talk, talk about going back to the, you know, to Acid, Acid House, you know, like that for, from that period, like say mid 80s up to probably about 10 years ago, there was just a kind of seemingly a constant conveyor belt of these just, as I described, just fresh musical movements, which would, you know, which seemingly come from nowhere and take influence from various different other things, and but make something which seemed tangibly new. I don't know, and it's really difficult, like you say, because you don't want to be that, you know, old guy. <laughs> I'm trying to be objective about it and trying to see things far as they are, and it's, it's, but it's difficult to reach a different conclusion. I think I really think it is. It is. It is difficult, man. It is very difficult, and I think. I think over that time period that you mentioned, uh, you know, Acid House and from then all these kind of rapid, uh, really new musical expressions, they were quite often or almost always the result of some sort of new technology, right? Some kind of new studio or music tech, be it the sampler or... um, I'm trying to think now or drum machine or you know those were kind of like really kind of um landmark changes in in music technology and then even like plugins the, becoming the, widely available and cheap that that had a huge yeah. impact on music you know yeah and I just don't think there's any there hasn't been anything for a while now probably over 10 years if not longer than that maybe even since the DAW everything it, now it feels like everything is just like an iteration and a more convenient quicker bigger hard drive version of of what's existed already yeah i mean actually I've, I've yeah i have made this exact observation i think you're absolutely right like it's seemingly up until about up until yeah the the, the advent of the uh, of the kind of uh the, the door in its kind of modern sense, which was basically 20 years ago at this point, or maybe maybe more, like every like every technological innovation since then has really just been about making it easier to do stuff which you could do before. Yeah. Whereas before that, like the probably the 50 years or more of you know music tech developments from like you know the electric guitar to whatever, that those were primarily around making new sounds. Right, they were about making something which sounded different. Yeah, and and everything we've had in recent memory has really just been about making something which has happened before, but just making it easier for people to do the same stuff. 
yeah. basically, which is a bit of a caricature, but I think that's broadly speaking pretty accurate. Yeah, no, totally, totally. I think it's yeah, that's I think it's important to kind of um, say that yeah, this is not an absolute um, opinion. This is just a, a, a kind of take, I think, on on where we're at at the moment. I mean, so then it becomes about okay. So then, what does inspire change? in electronic music um where do you get new inspiration from it's not going to be like the akai time stretch you know which went on and it inspired loads of producers to do that or it wasn't it's not going to be like maybe the 303 or something like that because because of everything we've just discussed but then it's about what well, what are we using as these these next sources of inspiration these next points of inspiration um and it's a hard question to answer, man. It's a really hard qu- question to answer. I think for me, like mixing, mixing genres together, mixing pre-existing ideas together, I think has always and can continue to be um, a source of inspiration. Um, so you know, like the the footwork and the jungle sort of thing that came that was post any interesting technology happening and there wasn't any kind of interesting technology that allowed that to happen that was just taking two different genres from two different places and two different quite uh culturally quite different as well and sort of putting them together and seeing seeing what came out of it um and then i think in 2019 just before covid I was playing a lot of electro and mixing that in with a lot of breakbeat stuff or break stuff that had breakbeats in it. So, you know, 140 BPM jungle tracks and then mixing electro in. And then all of a sudden that was like, oh, that feels quite interesting. What happens if we have kind of loads of techie electro-y kind of drum sounds with some jungle breaks and, and stuff like that? And then that kind of immediately felt interesting and new. So I think I think you know the, the the technology thing is really important, really, 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 really important, and it's an, an important way of understanding how music is going to change going forward, because it will it, it it can ultimately stop you having the internal conversation or the rhetoric of like oh there's no nothing new happens anymore, nothing you know the, we're all just rehashing the same ideas when it's like yes we ultimately yes we are. But that's because there isn't any new technology that is going to drastically change the way in which we make music or provide us with new sounds. Even the topic that you spoke about quite a few times on this podcast, the AI thing. I was just going to say that, yeah. (laughs) I don't don't actually think that's necessarily going to offer any new sounds or new... I mean, I might be totally wrong here, and I hope I am, but I can't see how it's going to offer anything that we haven't necessarily already heard. And I mean, by definition, at this point at least, it's just sort of recreating examples of existing material anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I, a massive think... AI. Uh, I, I'm not a massive AI guy at all. So you know, I might get shot down for a lot of this. Um, uh, this is just my kind of very kind of uneducated take on it but to me it doesn't it it doesn't feel like that's going to provide us with any immediate change to the sonics 
of 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 dance music sure i i think um i guess the response to that would be that um you know ai is um essentially a tool and um it still would rely upon whichever human whichever artist um is using that tool to identify whatever's coming out of the whatever ai um plugin or whatever you know whatever's being used mm. there's still got to be a human to identify that and say yeah that sounds sick that sounds different i'm going to release that on a record mm. you know so it's not just a case of you know ai coming up with something <laughs> which is cool it's got to be you know someone's got a vibe with it in the immediate term and then it's got to migrate you know it's got to make its way from you know from the producer to the to label to you know um to you know dub play or whatever you know to use a archaic term but you know what i mean yeah. it's got a like there's still a way to go i guess is what i'm saying because i mean as i said before i think there are there are really great records being made i think what we're lacking is a bit of cohesion and a bit of kind of community yeah i think if anything that's maybe the bigger problem um and to go back to what i was saying before about the you know small venues being squeezed and you know, they're just not being the opportunity for these things to incubate in their natural habitat, if you want. Mm -hmm. Like, I think maybe, I think maybe that's the bigger problem here. Um, I mean, obviously they're aggra aggravating factors, but like I, I you know, I'm, I'm you know, trying to compare it to, um, you know, those kind of early 2000s kind of days, which seemed so, which were so exciting. I think without those clubs, it wouldn't have been the same thing. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. No, it certainly wouldn't have. It certainly wouldn't have. Um, so then it, yeah, then it becomes about how do you provide that possibility for incubation in today's cultural climate also with the with, with with like the with deep consideration of of young people because that's the other thing to really remember here right the dance music electronic music at least the stuff that we're primarily uh interested in or kind of leaning towards is all made by young people right yeah absolutely i mean almost all good music generally speaking is made by young people let's face it you know exactly so uh, ultimately it's down to them <laughs> not to pass the <laughs> not to pass the buck to come them. on young people come up with some good tunes yeah yeah 
Oh, it's not just come up with good tunes. It's kind of like come up with a way of how you can incubate and grow on a long-term level, how you can grow something, how you can grow ideas and how you can bounce off of each other and learn from each other to to give um, yourself a scene the kind of infrastructure mm. that will allow it to be there for years and years and years to come. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, all 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 the sorry, all the all, all the flip mode is there that maybe we are so in in such a different place culturally that that's just not going to happen. And maybe even that looking at it and considering it from that point of view is now antiquated. Yeah, I mean, I think culture um, reflects the kind of physical like surroundings. Like to to a certain extent, anyway, and I think you know what we're talking about, you know, about the the um the pressure on small venues and all that kind of stuff. Like that's not a cultural thing; it's an economic reality, right? And I think culture yeah. has basically evolved to fit that economic reality in a way which I think has been quite bad for small music scenes. I mean, just objectively, I think that's probably accurate. And you know, what has what has replaced it has been, um. You know what has well the way people meet and the way people interact um, is is online now. Obviously, much to a much greater extent, mm. and unfortunately, you know, social media is um, and increasingly just TikTok is is the kind of dominant sphere there. Let, let me ask you about um, in terms of how you guys run the label. Like, do you take TikTok and that kind of thing seriously at all? In terms, of, I mean, do you? I mean, do you, for example, do like TikTok edits and that kind of shit? Do you? Do mm. you? I mean, is that part of your thinking with the label? Um, no. <laughs> Fair enough. It, <laughs> no, initially. Yeah, let me just I th- think about this because it's a it's a really interesting question, um, and I think it's changing constantly as well. My opinion on it. Okay, so I'll tell you what, right? I'll tell you who is excellent is Elijah. Right. Um, who I'm sure I'm sure you've seen. Yeah, yeah, he's been on the podcast, yeah. And his, yep. Yeah, and his yellow squares and whatnot. And, and his, so when I hear him talking about social media, I'm like, yeah, this sounds incredible. I, I, you know, I want in on this and, and how can I, how can I adapt what I'm doing um, and how can I use it, as he says, as a canvas but then when I try to kind of put it into um, into practice, it feels or it start it can start to feel a bit forced and a bit ultimately un unnatural. And I think where we've got the label, where we built the label, is to a really good place, and we've got a really dedicated fan base to which I'm 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 always. Um, indebted to you know like it's I'm, I'm always just amazed by how dedicated the fan base to to our label is and we've sort of built that up all in or using our own channels like obviously we i use social media like i use it you know i i i have an instagram and i'm um, a twitter and whatnot but i don't i don't use tiktok but i'm also interested in how it works and why it works because as i said i'm i am interested in culture and i'm interested in cutting edge culture and 
you know, off the back of how excited I was about jungle music, about dubstep and whatnot, I'm I'm always interested in what young people are doing and what they're excited about and how they approach things. Mm. So I always do have one eye on it, yeah. But I think the way I've run the label from an AR perspective and for want of a better word, a branding perspective, even though that doesn't at all fit kind of my outlook, it's it's always been authentic. It's always been about authenticity. And, you know, not from, again, not from a point of view as in like, what can I do that feels authentic? It's just how I do it. That's just kind of what naturally happens. It's all about my taste. It's all about my A&R. It's all about me hearing the music I want to hear and releasing the, the, the music I want to hear. So anything I do do on social media has to also fit that, I think. And unfortunately, I think a lot of what I'm seeing currently in terms of music promotion on social media doesn't feel authentic. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at with it at the moment. Can you be, let me, how does it, let me, let me ask you about that. Can you be more specific about that? Do you mean... um when you so when you're seeing other people promote other other labels, or is it a, a case of um, artists promoting themselves? I mean, that's the thing with social media. It's like I think it, it it's it's kind of an uh, is an uneasy fit when you're trying to. And we're talking from a um, you know the perspective of the, of the traditional record label. Yeah, it's it's tough to put you know to make that into something into a social media presence that makes any kind of sense. But is that what you, is that what you mean by that? I think I've just let me try and word this correctly again going back to the what elijah says there's social media and using it as a canvas and genuinely tying it in with what you do and your brand Mm. and making interesting stuff and then there is the posting of stuff designed to just get likes or to go viral or whatever you know that that feels uncomfortable for me. So it's a, it, it's a bit of a, a double-edged sword one. I don't know if that's the right term, but you know, I, I look at what some people do on it, and I'm like, that just feels so you. It feels right what you're doing. And then there's a lot of other stuff on there that I'm just like, this feels just kind of like trying to game an algorithm, or you know that that kind of that kind of stuff. But then it is a real tricky one because then why not, right? Why not? The social media is a platform. It's just another tool. It's just there. If you're making cool music, good art, why would you not want as many people to see or hear that as possible? And if that means doing things in order to uh, to, to um, a- appease the algorithm, then why would you not do that? So that's that's what i mean by i have a kind of complex understanding and relationship i think with social media at at this point in time yeah i mean it's so easy to be cynical about it you know it's so easy to look at it in a kind of um kind of reflexively negative kind of a way right because because like you say like it's i mean Mm. i I think it's you know you've any kind of scroll down instagram or whatever like you're 100 percent of the time going to see people doing exactly what you described i mean doing stuff which is the most you know uh you know i guess bad faith 
kind of interaction, do you? Just just trying in a really naked kind of a way to, as you said, like game the algorithm and just get likes. And and it just leaves a bad taste in the mouth. Um, and and it's so easy just to, to, you know, to come across those kinds of things and just think, you know, what's the world come to? But like, yeah. as you say, um, at the end of the day, it is just a tool. So It's a tool. So why should we not use it? Why should we not use it, you know? The marketing of music is not a new thing, right? That's the thing. Okay, so there was a there was a viral uh, there was a post that went viral a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was this female musician basically talking about how embarrassing it is to promote your music online, and um, you know, and she used the example of you know, well, you know, Tom York would never have done this, you know, when they were when Radiohead was starting out. But obviously, that's not true because Radiohead very famously. You know, had a toe curlingly embarrassing marketing campaign for the Creep single, right? It's just a just a different kind of marketing. It was just the, the marketing of the early nineties and the marketing of the twenty twenties. Yeah, you know, this stuff has always existed. There's always been embarrassing shit to have to, to go through to market a record. I mean, it's just always been like that. Yeah. You know, and it just feels more embarrassing now, I suppose. Maybe because social media is feels more personal. Right, because it is your account, and people have the perception that it is you're going to be doing it, and it's like you know you've just you're sitting there with your phone, and maybe that does feel a little bit more embarrassing. But really, this shit's always been part of music, right? Yeah, it has been, and like I said before, like why would you not want as many people to find your music as possible? Like, is that not the sort of yeah? Well, I'm not going to say that's the aim, right? The aim is to make amazing music that you feel strongly about and you love. But once you've done that... Yeah, of course you want as many people as possible to hear it, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, it's a tricky one. So off the back of all of that, yes, I do use social media and I will continue to. But it's not something that we uh build into like a a release campaign or something like that you know it's pretty kind of it's it's a pretty kind of standard approach to it Mm. but that's not that's not to say that it's not a space that you can do some some fun stuff on yeah i mean the the reason well i mean one of the reasons i asked the question is because you you may have seen the this new story last week with universal and tiktok uh yeah beefing and our label's uh, distributed by Universal, and w- all our music disappeared from TikTok the next day. And suddenly, and you know, suddenly you're into the kind of front line of these, you know, major kind of music industry wars. And you realize how, you know, how important that platform is now. It's it's crazy. Um, in a, really a few short years, you know, that's really become a very very significant thing. Um, in music as a whole, and maybe not so much in the kind of music, you know, the area of music that we operate in, as you as you said, like it, it is a bit of a, um, a kind of silo. But you know, it's the the pace of change is is really it's not letting up. You know, I think there was a kind of assumption once streaming had established itself that that was kind of going to be it now. But like, it's seemingly there is another front opening you know in the whole thing and mm-hmm. i don't know i mean so actually that's i mean that's a that's a separate question um in in the 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 period that you guys have been running astrophonica that's the that was the period of um streaming becoming dominant so how did you guys deal with that over the it was i guess it was the first sort of five or six years of a label was when maybe a bit maybe a bit longer than that 
as streaming became more important. How did you guys figure your way through that uh, transition? Yeah, um, so I'm just trying to plot the timeline. So yeah, we started it in like 2008 or nine, and at that point, I don't think streaming was even a thing at all. If I'm right, um, and I don't even think buying digital was really a thing at that point either. I think maybe there was iTunes. Yeah. Uh, so at, at that point, we we're just selling vinyl. We we're just selling vinyl, um, and that went on for a couple of years. Then the selling of digital started up, and at that point, we were with ST Holdings, and they, you might, have, you were probably, we with them certainly as well, were, actually. yeah. I'm hopefully, going to have Chris Parkinson on on the, the show at some stage. Hopefully, yeah. Shout out, Chris, man. Um, and they had the Surus thing. Do you remember Surus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They tried to build their own platform and just emptied a load of resources into it, and unfortunately, never really yeah. came to fruition. <laughs> It was kind of like a band camp. It was sort of like, yeah, the idea was kind of like a band camp thing. And for, for yeah, it was a great idea, they, to be fair. They run. It was a wicked idea. Yeah, it was a great idea. Um, and it actually worked for us for a little bit. And and I remember, actually, I remember Chris saying, like, look, we, you know, you, let's give away the MP3 with every vinyl purchase. And I remember for ages, I was just like, I can't get my head around that. <laughs> right. I was just like, what, you want me to give my, the, the, uh, you want me to give an MP3 away with every vinyl purchase? I was just like, I can't get my head around that. But obviously, you know, that's, that's now what everyone does, does on Bandcamp. But I remember specifically being like, oh, that's just bizarre, man. That's weird. And then streaming came along and I sort of fumbled through it for a bit. Um, and I've got to give a massive shout out to Mark Shelley. Uh, who you might know? No, I don't know him actually. Um, uh, he basically does the 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 back end of Astrophonica. Has been doing it for probably about ten years now. Um, distribution manufacturer and is now taking on a lot of other labels as well as um, sequences. Mm. And he has really been a huge help in kind of getting on top of streaming and everything like that, and got the label to a point where it's definitely another uh, revenue source. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I, I would say, uh, it's a funny one, isn't it? It's like, I know there's a lot of people taking music off streaming at the moment and I'm always wary about if that would actually boost your your Bandcamp or your direct downloads. Yeah, I'm pretty dubious. I, because I, I, I see it as kind of two different two different markets um i don't know like i said i might who knows could get could be proven wrong there but that's kind of how we've dealt with streaming and honestly mark mark has been like a huge help and he's got he's definitely got the label and the artist on the label and myself as an artist as well to a place where it is definitely part of of the revenue one of the revenue streams Mm. Which has any kind of small independent label, independent artist, you know, that's what it's all about, right? It's all about the different streams. Yes. Um, you've talked you've talked at length on on here about Bandcamp and uh, what did you call it? Single point of failure. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, it sort of, it sort of kind of touches on that as a conversation where you, as a small independent artist, you have you know some some artists labels do better on different platforms, but ultimately you kind of got to maximise and work all of these different different platforms and different streams. So, whereas I've 
obviously got my reservations about streaming and the the culture that it um promotes it's another tool it's not going anywhere mm. and as it currently stands it's it's another way for us to reach more people and another another part of the stream revenue stream so yeah that's kind of my approach did you guys ever do anything with nfts no because no. that's another it's another one yeah that's a whole other thing and it's honestly something i don't know that much about um yeah it's still kind of um boggles boggles me slightly <laughs> to be honest the web3 and the and the nft thing i know that crust and dbridge and people are quite into it but for me personally no i didn't yeah i didn't ever get into it no fair enough i mean it's um it's pretty impenetrable, I think, conceptually, <laughs> to a large extent. Yeah. Okay, um, I wanted to go all the way back and ask you about how you how you got to technicality in the first place. Like, where where were you? Um, yeah. Where were your first raving experiences? So, going all the way back, um, I mean, I got into the music really young. So, I went to I grew up in East London in Hackney. And I went to school in Islington. Um, shout out Islington Green. And during that period, that was like, started in 91. I think I started at secondary school. So the whole underground rave thing was just becoming apparent. Um, and it was sort of everywhere in London. You couldn't escape it particularly going to like an inner London school there'd be people there whose brothers were maybe DJs, producers or even going to raves or whatever um, pirate radio obviously was everywhere um, I remember talking to someone just the other day about how like even at school on the desks pirate radio frequencies and phone numbers would be written on the desks and stuff and you, you know you got, that's when I was like 13 sort of years old so it was really like pirate radio and just being in the vicinity of basically hardcore and, and early jungle music that, that gave me my kind of first insights into it. So it was by location, really. It was by location. And then, I mean, pirate radio was my fascination and still is, still is now. I, I, I've, I'm working on an ongoing project called 0860 at the moment, which is uh, a pirate radio, a celebration of pirate radio and an archival project. Okay. Tell me, yeah, tell me more about that. Tell me more about that, if you can. So, yeah, no, of course I will. I'd love to. It, it, it was one of those lockdown projects, started in lockdown. Um, gave me the space to do stuff that maybe wasn't going to work in a club. And it started out as an album, and it is an album. Um, and I'll take it right back to, to kind of how it started. I found a sample of Eastman from Cool FM, um, mentioning the classic phone the cool fm phone line number 0860395262 and i thought i'll sample that man that is an incredible sample i make a jungle track and i'll put that in it um and the whole thing kind of snowballed from there and then i was like oh this sounds this feels really interesting um it's jungle music traditional jungle music where it's tapping now directly into my um, why? Why I'm fascinated with jungle music. So I made an album uh, based on based on pirate radio, based on what I was hearing on pirate radio. Loads of samples off of pirate radio. 
presented it in a sort of aesthetic that was um, inspired by Poet Radio, so a bit more crusty, a bit more degraded, a bit more lo-fi. And then off the back of that, I felt I thought, well, this is actually really interesting, so I'm going to expand it. And so I started uh, interviewing people who had a background in Poet Radio, so people from Cool FM, like Eastman and Brian G., um, people from Pulse FM, um, people that went on to have or that used Pirate Radio as a as a, a stepping stone to go on and have national radio careers like DJ Flight. Mm. Um, I spoke to Sherelle and Nana because I was interested in how young people look at the legacy of Pirate Radio. Um, and I think. I, I did it for two reasons. Number one is where I come from. It was is what I'm passionate about. So I wanted to present my music and my story as an artist. But also through doing that, I became closer to how important pirate radio was to underpinning the genres that we love. So hardcore, jungle, dubstep, grime. I think dubstep and grime being the last kind of genres that probably used pirate radio as a as a sort of uh, a means of well quite literally broadcasting their music mm. and then and then i realized it was about community as well and i realized it was there was so much diy going on in there as well and i realized it wasn't to do with major labels it wasn't to do with um it, on some level it wasn't even to do with selling records or having careers as as touring djs it was much more of a community-based um, concept, the idea of pirate radio. So I felt that that was important to document and discuss and present to people because there's a lot of people involved in pirate radio that didn't go on to become touring DJs and big artists and whatnot, and, and, but, uh, but are perhaps as important, if not more important, um, than some of the artists themselves. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's debatable. But you know, so people like Eastman at Cool FM. Um, you know, Cool FM was number one source of jungle music and jungle music information on a street level, or on the, which was the only level for about five years, maybe between the years of kind of when it started, ninety one up until, I guess, probably the end of the 90s, really, you know? And if it wasn't for stations like Cool FM, I wouldn't have heard the music, but also hundreds, thousands of other people also would not have heard the music. So I thought it was incredibly important to document that and present it to people, um, both old and young, I think, because, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show it's easy to present this stuff from the point of view of like, look how amazing it used to be. Yeah. But I also wanted to talk to people like Sherelle and discuss it from a community point of view and then have those questions we were having earlier on. Well, you know, what does community look like to you and how do you share your music? How do you listen to your music? What are your kind of platforms? Um, so yeah, that was the 0860 project. Um, it's still ongoing ongoing now um i'm going to start it up again as you know that it doing interviews and podcasts and stuff like that they take up a lot of time um 
so and I'm doing it all off my own back in a kind of very very kind of traditional pirate radio sort of way so yeah so I need to find time to kind of kick that back up as and when um but that's where I come from so that's where I come from pirate radio yeah sorry your... I interrupted you yeah yeah no no it's good man to, no they are you know happy to talk about that stuff because I think it's important and I think it does link to what we were talking about earlier you know the spaces that allow music to to incubate and pirate radio was another one of those spaces totally was one of those spaces so if I had pirate radio I heard all the music and then I start I, I wanted to, I wanted in on jungle but I was still too young. So I ended up going primarily to like hardcore raves, happy hardcore raves. And um, quite often like psytrance uh, raves as well, because yeah. they would In quite fact, often yeah, we have... Were, we were talking about Megachipolis, weren't we? Sorry to interrupt you again, but We yeah. were. Okay. Yeah. Quite often they'd have like a, a room two, which would be jungle. Or happy hardcore, and then in the within the happy hardcore sets, they'd be playing jungle. So it'd be like stuff like um, you know, Chrome and Time Slammer, um, all the kind of early slamming vinyl stuff. Where it was like a little bit jungle, a little bit happy hardcore. Yep. So it was like yeah, as you mentioned, like Megatripolis at Heaven was one of the early ones I used to go to. Um, I used to go to Labyrinth quite a lot because that actually was one that I could get. Yeah, into shit. When I was like 15. on Dalston Lane, right? Yeah. Yeah, and on Dalston Lane. Dalston was a bit different in those days. I mean, yeah, the whole thing was different. I mean, and it, yeah, this is another kind of, I don't know, paradox of how I look back on things, right? Because Labyrinth, particularly, after, I used to go there, sometimes on my own to meet other people in there, sometimes with other people, but quite often than, or more often than not would get essentially get mugged in the queue <laughs> get yeah get stuff taken off you not that I had anything to take back when I was then and then I would just still continue to queue up and go into the club uh, and then you know similar things would happen in the club as well yeah I mean the, the raves in those days were you know they were rough places to be but that was part of the attraction, right? It was. It really was. It was part of the attraction. It was part of the attraction, and that and this is where it's, it is a real kind of weird relationship in my head because I've I've got young kids, uh, and you know they might get into to go into raves. And if you asked me, would I want them to you know be getting mugged in the queue <laughs> going to labyrinth? No, I wouldn't at all. But I look back on it, and it and it made the whole thing a bit more exciting. It may, and that sounds really weird. No, but absolutely. It, it, it did, felt yeah. it felt lawless. It felt lawless. It felt alternative. It felt counterculture. It felt uh, anti-establishment. It felt punk. Yeah, and that was what was super exciting about it for me. I think, yeah. So yeah, like Labyrinth was definitely early days. Labyrinth, and then and then I started going to the bigger events when I could finally get in. To, to events I started going to things like world dance and um, yeah big bigger event Desire mm. um, what was, what's the other one still going now Mickey Finn's thing is it Mickey Finn Innovation all those kind of stuff yeah Camden Palace all that sort of stuff and then it was like Bar Rumba movement at Bar Rumba yeah and stuff like that and then I was in then I was in and it was just wherever yeah. So, who is okay? Who is your favorite DJ when you were a kid? 
Good question, man. Um, when I was listening to pirate radio, it was probably Brocky. Right. On Call FM. You know, Brocky and Debt. It just sort of doesn't get more iconic <laughs> yeah, than that absolutely, if you're sort of talking man. about talking about jungle music. Um, so yeah, Brocky and Debt, and then like Andy C. I think as a club DJ was always one of my favourites. Just like incredible mixing te- um, uh, capability, um, incredible selection, but also just an like an amazing DJ. Yeah. So I think radio-wise, I would I, it would have been Brocky, but I was also a massive fan of um, Brian G on Cool FM as well because he did like a Sunday night show. Um, this was kind of I would say this was like mid nineties, ninety six ish, and he was like the dub plate guy, right? So if there was a big tune, Brian G would have cut it. So he became a place on Sunday nights that you would hear like all the new dubs that weren't going to be coming out for sort of eighteen months. And the way in which he presented his show, he did quite a lot of talking about the music that he played. That was quite different for 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 pirate radio because quite often pirate radio was a DJ and an MC, and it was just kind of like almost like a an extension of a club set. Whereas Brian G, Brian G was much more of a kind of radio presenter. Um, so you know all these little moments along the way that just kind of deepened my deepened my sort of fascination and love for it really. Yeah. And when did you start DJing? Um, I mean, technicality and stuff like that. Uh, that was when I would say I would I I, I really started playing out. Mm. So that was like two thousand and one, was it? Two thousand and one, two thousand two, something like that. Yeah. Uh, previous to that, I started on Rude FM in about ninety nine, and then previous to that, it was pretty much just playing in my bedroom. How did you get on on Rude in the first place? How did you get your first? Uh... Sound pirate. Yeah, I mean, same way a lot of people do. I think they used to have adverts. If you know, if you listen to a lot of pirate radio archive material, you know that they have an ad break every two hours or every hour. And in that ad break, there's quite often a little infomercial, whatever you want to call it, at the end saying if you want to, if you want to get on the station, send us a tape. Mm. Um, to this PO box, so yeah, that's what I did. Right, wow. And you had okay. you had to kind of like send in a little tape with a um, you presenting it as if it would be your, you know, this is how I'd present my show. Um, and then went and met them outside some pub somewhere. I can't even remember <laughs> where it was now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a real culture, isn't it? And it's it's funny because when you said that uh, dubstep and grime is really kind of the last kind of the last genres of that sort of underground music to really kind of come about as a result of that pirate culture that yeah I mean that makes a lot of it makes a lot of sense that um there has been no equivalent really since because you know when we're talking about Mm. footwork like footwork came from the states basically and it came via the internet basically Mm -hmm. um but there hasn't been you know the hardcore continuum as it were kind of came to a stop didn't it really yeah. And the hardcore continuum was basically a pirate radio driven thing, wasn't it? I think broadly speaking. Yeah, it was. It really was and it wasn't until I really started getting like digging into this as a as a project that I really sort of realized that. Mm. And it's because of, it, hardcore continuum all of that sort of stuff 
acid house, rave music. It's all anti-establishment, right? Whether it's actively anti-establishment or not, right? It's counterculture and it's anti-establishment and it's DIY and it is it quite often benefits from the misuse of existing equipment or existing locations or so on and pirate radio fit perfectly into that as well so yeah so then it's about well where are those where are those spaces now as we've mentioned and i i I think there's quite a strong illegal party scene in london Mm. with with young people again i you know this is like this is now slightly out of my out of my um jurisdiction these days but i think i think there's a quite a strong illegal party scene in london but you know on the flip side to that the police have such powers now that i think they can just shut you down before you've even started a party i don't know what the laws are exactly but it's not like it was previously you know previous to kind of 1994 if you'd set up and you were partying there was nothing the police could do and it wasn't until the obviously the criminal justice I mean, it's pretty crazy that it was like that wasn't it? <laughs> think about it yeah it's pretty wild yeah it's nuts I mean, there's, you know, there's the stories about Spiral Tribe, but um, was it Castle yeah, Morton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which was like a two-week rave <laughs> in, in a field. Jesus. I mean... People living there Sounds and like hard work, to be honest. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's why the the hardcore continuum somewhat, somewhat has, has slowed down or and people are looking to the hardcore continuum for inspiration. Yeah. Because I th- it, I think it's really hard to have a counterculture these days. Like what what even is counterculture these days? Yeah, this is a question that's been asked on the show more than once and there isn't an easy answer to it to be honest because I think one of the things that really has happened I think one of the major things that happened in the 90s was um the the brands big kind of fashion brands but also just you know anything that had a eye any any company that had an eye on marketing to young people just got into the habit of latching on to any kind of any any cultural trends that seemed like it was cool yeah and i mean that's another thing that we talked about on the show a lot as well is, is the is the degree to which people are okay with brands being involved with things now in a way which is not so much the case yeah uh in the kind of early few years of the of the kind of post acid house rave scene or even the club scene or whatever like that's that's another i think sort of aggravating factor because i think like there is no counterculture everything is just culture right and because you know there is a just a such a a degree of fragmentation and um co-option of anything like i said that seems to emerge basically yeah yeah i mean the same thing happened with skating skateboarding yep um i was i was a kind of avid uh skater uh, in the kind of mid uh, early to mid 90s i was never very good um but i was definitely kind of fascinated by the culture I used to go to south bank quite a lot and again much like labyrinth you'd get your board taken off you quite often um and just generally it was a very unpoliced sort of place uh, it's still there, but like you say, brands are involved and skating became 
uh, fashion statement as opposed to, or not as opposed to, but it, it became more of a fashion statement for people rather than something that they'd actually dedicate their life to. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. I think maybe graffiti mm. is still, you know, due to its sort of in- illegal nature, I think there is still presents itself as a bit of a counterculture. Um, I think aesthetically, brands have jumped on it and... Um, it's been accepted into kind of wider, the wider culture from a sort of aesthetic or purely visual point of view. But I think culturally, I think it's still one of the last sort of true widespread countercultures, I think. Um, I don't know. I, I, I would love to... I'm saying this very much from a point of view of being like a bit of a a, a, um, a blinkered sort of electronic musician from London. I'd like to hear... I mean, what's the punk scene like? Is is there a punk scene? Is that still a thing? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that. Are they worried? Are they kind of worried about social media and streaming numbers and stuff like I that? I think they definitely what? are. What? I think they definitely are. I mean, that's the thing. That's what's so interesting about music. The, the kind of global music scene, as it were, the global music market, the global music industry. Now, what is so interesting about it is there are there are unbelievably successful musicians that no one's ever heard of. Like, you know, musicians who by any stretch of the imagination are, you know, very, very popular, you know, but there are, but the fragmentation of music scenes has become such that, you know, it's possible to be um, command of a really quite a big audience and do millions and millions of streams and probably just make a living out of streaming. Hmm. But, no one outside of your immediate audience has heard of you. I mean, that's what's so fascinating about it. I mean, there's so few genuinely global stars. I mean, like, you know, Taylor Swift kind of takes um, all the headlines because she is, I think, even in the context of historical, you know, global pop stars, she is a huge global pop star. But, you know, there just aren't, there's just, well, there just isn't that kind of commonality of experience with music now. Um, yeah. At a, at a kind of, at a wide level. But I think that's also true for, you know, as you kind of drill down into more quote unquote underground scenes, there's just such a volume of things happening that it's impossible to keep, it's possible to have a, have a, any kind of like, you know, comprehensive view about all of it, you know? And, and, and that's why when, when I'm kind of having this kind of conversation, I'm kind of bemoaning, you know, how bad things are. I, at the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, no, but there has to be something amazing happening somewhere. Just, just because there must be, right? Like, and I don't think, I don't think you could say that 30 years ago because I just don't think there was that kind of um, plurality of people just doing stuff. And, you know, there wasn't the ability for as many people to, you know, Ableton has just meant that, you know, literally billions of people could be making music at any given time. Um, Mm -hmm. And that sort of by definition means that something somewhere must be good. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But then, but then, you know, what do you ju- what do you judge? How do you judge good, right? Well, yeah. um, for me, it goes it goes kind of it kind of goes back again to what we were saying at the beginning. It's all contextual. Um, and I know that sounds weird because then that's kind of suggests that something can be good in one context but not in a, another context. Then it's then it all kind of gets a bit um, confused. But I think that the context is everything and isolated incidents of of things being 
um, things being good, whatever that means. I just don't think it. They it just it then just does it's a drop in the ocean, isn't it? It doesn't. Yeah, but travel. that doesn't make doesn't... a movement. You know, yeah. As I was yeah. saying before, like there's there's definitely people making good music, but that doesn't necessarily make it. You know, equivalent to the things that we've been talking about. Yeah. Anyway, man, this has been great. Uh, let me throw you one annoying one to finish. Um, sure. What are your Okay, name me. A, okay, I was going to say name three, but name me a few tunes that have come out in the last ten years. The, the kind of the period that we've been talking about, right? Since everything went shit. Yeah. <laughs> name me a few tunes that yeah. have bucked that. <laughs> name me a few tunes that have bucked that trend that jump out to you in that period. Oh, yeah, that is a really difficult one. Um, mainly because I'm just so bad at remembering stuff like that now, and kind of putting my finger on stuff. Um, let me try and think of some. I can definitely give you some artists. I think uh, Nicky Nair, yep. I think, is doing some incredible stuff. Um, obviously, I love his EP on Astrophonica, but I think uh, there's been a few Nicky Nair tunes that he's done that I can definitely see myself playing in another 10 years' time. And that's always the barometer, right? Can can you see yourself playing it in another 10 years' time? Um I mean, I, do you know what? This is going to sound really bad, but I'm going to say another record that we put out. That's um, okay. That's fine. Swan Dive. <laughs> Swan Dive by Sully <laughs> is another one um, that I just yeah, think I could have... Ca- I rate him as a producer for sure. I mean, his music could have come out 20 years ago, but it also sounds like it it's kind of somehow from 20 years in the future, um, which is, you know, that's definitely something I always look for. Uh, for music that I sign and and release, mm. um, oh mate, you've put me on the spot here, man. I really want, I really want, <laughs> I, I really want to come up with some like really profound music. Um, what has come out in the last ten years? What date are we now? Two thousand and fourteen. Yep. So, oh, so sorry, it goes back to two thousand and fourteen. Um, Mate, do you know what? There's so much that I honestly feel like my vision is somewhat clouded now. It's almost like not being able to see the wood from <laughs> for the trees. And I feel that when I'm when I'm sorting my DJ sets out sometimes. I'm just like I know the feeling. I don't know what to I don't know what to play. <laughs> I don't know what to play. I don't know what to put in my record box. I mean that suggests that things haven't been quite as bad as we've been making out, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, of course. I think you know what the difference is, and I think you talked about this with uh, Sean Ronaldo. Mm. Is it's the anthems right. that, that are missing? Right. Yeah, it's those like it's like it's those ubiquitous tracks that are missing. Um, so something like Benga and uh, Koki Night. Yeah, you know something like that. Something like Warhead, you know, or something like Warhead. Yeah, something like that. I'm not sure there's anything like that in my in my record box for the last 10 years and that doesn't mean that they're not good records or good songs it's just I think that due to the fact that there's just so much stuff now it's hard for them to gain that momentum and that status yeah what about you what's I know you want to wrap this up but what's in the last 10 years what, what what's, I mean, what's really stuck yeah. for you it's hard. It's, it's. I tell you what. Tell you actually why I find it hard is because I've not really been in 
one place musically in that time. I've jumped about all over the shop. Like I've been a techno DJ in that time. I've been making house at certain points. Like in the last couple of years, I've really come back to bass music a lot. Um, and like, it's difficult when you don't really know the, like the audience reaction to things inside out. Because I don't think like, if you played Warhead to someone, for example, who didn't know drum and bass, I don't think they'd say, wow, that's a huge record. Mm. You know, it's, it's the, like you said, the context in which something sits, which is as important, I think, as anything else. And particularly with dance music, because particularly it's the, there's the moments on the dance floor, which people have to those records, which really kind of give them the kind of life that they then take on, you know? I mean, obviously there yeah. are... There's so much, there is... So- Go on. No, there, there's just so many more layers to it. Mm. And that's what I mean by context. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Anyway, man, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna call time on this because my, my back's about to break in half, apparently. So No doubt. No doubt. You know what, just before just before we do go, uh, uh, um shout out to Komodo, I think, oh, because yeah. Komodo has made some music in the last kind of ten years which I, I really think has been standout. Yeah. That's one that just suddenly sprung to my mind. Sorry to just jump in there, but yeah, the the Komodo stuff. Yeah. Um Yeah, I co signed that sort of five years ago yeah amazing wicked man it's been great yeah that was Fracture what an interesting conversation what a thoughtful guy it was great to catch up with him actually after so many years wow yeah the um, early 2000s periods of Shoreditch clubs was pretty amazing actually just in the amount of different cool stuff that was going on seemingly millions of regular club nights just each with its own sound of which forward obviously probably the most famous but yeah that technicality night was also great and there were just loads of others too we touched upon possibly the dumbest ever twitter pylon actually during that conversation there was an article in ra a couple of years ago i think it was a couple of years ago maybe it was a bit longer about the early rave scene, the early jungle scene in particular in London. And the author of it pointed out that there was a propensity of people to get mugged outside those raves. And Twitter decided that was like some kind of like racist take on the music scene, which is so, so dumb. I mean, tell me you never went to a rave in the early 90s without telling me you never went to a rave in the early 90s. But it also, it struck me, really said a lot about what those people think about street crime and who perpetrates street crime, right? Because I can tell you, as someone who grew up in London in the 90s, street crime was not a pursuit that was confined to one demographic group. It was absolutely a multicultural thing. And you were as likely to get mugged by a white youth as you were by anyone else, to be honest. So, yeah, I think people who reach for those particular stereotypes well it just says a bit more about them and it does anyone else doesn't it really anyway that's enough for this week isn't it we will be back same time same place oh, actually before just before i go a reminder that you can support the show on patreon patreon.com scuba official if you don't want to do that if you can't do it also that's totally fine follow the show wherever you listen to this podcast whichever platform you're listening to leave us a review or a rating and join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. I will see you back here, same time, same place, for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you.
let's go, wow.